Welcome to the AJHP podcast series. The American Journal of Health System Pharmacy is the official journal of the American Society of Health System Pharmacists, an association of pharmacists committed to helping patients make the best use of medications. For more information about AJHP, please visit www.ajhp.org. This is William Zelmer, AJHP Contributing Editor. I'm speaking today with two of the authors of an AJHP paper entitled Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategies, Assessment of a Medical Center's Policies and Procedures. The lead author is Lindsay Childs, PharmD, MPH, who is a PGY2 resident in infectious diseases at the South Texas Veterans Healthcare System in San Antonio. This project was done at Tampa General Hospital, Tampa, Florida, and also on the line with us is Mintry Young, PharmD, who is Director of Residency Programs and Education Coordinator at the Pharmacy Department at Tampa General Hospital. Before we begin our conversation, let me just give some basic information about uh, risk evaluation and mitigation strategy. Uh, as most listeners, I'm sure, know, that's a strategy to manage a known or potential serious risk associated with a drug or biologic product. A REMS is required if the FDA determines that a REMS is necessary to ensure the benefits of the drug or biologic product outweigh its risks. A REMS can include a medication guide, a patient package insert, a communication plan, elements to assure safe use, and an implementation system. Well, welcome, Lindsay and Min. Uh, let me ask you, Min, to perhaps get us started here by giving some background on Tampa General Hospital and why this assessment of REMS was conducted and the time frame for that assessment. Okay, great. Thank you again for inviting me to participate in this broadcast. Tampa General Hospital is a thousand-bed academic medical center. We have a level one trauma center. We're a private nonprofit organization. And back in 2000, around 2010, um, we were really challenged with the REMS requirements that came out for EPO. Um, because of our patient population, we have a, a high utilization of EPO and really recognize the need to step in line with the requirements for EPO. Outside of that, we really kind of took this as an opportunity to look overall as an institution, how are we addressing REMS? Um, and it wasn't just EPO kind of spurred the need to do that. And so we recognized that we truly needed a formalized process to do an analysis of the REMS requirements, better understanding of it, and then also how the department as a whole is going to address meeting the requirements. So it became a need for the department, and we have our pharmacy residents who have in the past been very involved in many of our administrative projects and quality improvement initiatives and recognize that this is a great project for um, the residents to really develop their project management skills. And when Lindsay came on board as one of our PGY1s, she took on this the lead for this project and has done an excellent job in helping us with the assessment. Mm -hmm. Lindsay, let me ask you, uh, at the time of this assessment, how many drug products were on the market that had a REMS requirement? At the time of the assessment, there were 145 drugs that required some facet of REMS, and that number came from the FDA's official website for REMS requirements. Mm -hmm. And what process did you use then to determine the number out of these uh, 145 products 
where the REMS requirement applied in an inpatient setting? There's no real good definition of inpatient applicable REMS requirements. So at the time of the assessment, we determined that any drug that required elements to assure safe use, most of the time drugs that require elements to assure safe use have a requirement of a physician to be registered, sometimes a hospital or a pharmacy to be enrolled in a program, and sometimes even patients to be enrolled in a program. So we included all those drugs that had elements to assure safe use. We classified those as inpatient applicable. Over and above that, at the time of the assessment, I went through all of the 145 drugs, and the vast majority of them only required a medication guide. Usually, under the Code of Federal Regulations, medication guides only have to be given in the outpatient setting when the medication is going to be used for self-administration. However, in my analysis of the wording of several REMS requirements, there were a couple of them that the wording seemed to imply that the medic that a medication guide needed to be given in an inpatient setting. For example, there was one, I believe it was Prasagril, that said that the medication guides would accompany hospital blister packs, not just the bottles that are used in an outpatient pharmacy. So that seemed to imply that those medication guides needed to be given in the inpatient setting. So as a part of that, um, we came up with 22 drugs that met the definition of inpatient applicable. And then at that point, we looked at 18 months of previous utilization of these drugs to see which ones we had actually ordered in our hospital setting. And that took us down to 10 drugs that had been used in the previous 18 months. And that's where the actual analysis was done, whether we had a policy or procedure in place or not. Okay. So you, this all focused on those 10 products then. What can you say about the new policies and procedures that you introduced as a result of uh, this analysis? So one of the first things we realized that needed to be done was education about what REMS is, what REMS requirements are, and which drugs would have inpatient applicable REMS. So there were several educational efforts that we undertook, including writing an article for our physician newsletter. I also did a presentation at the PNT committee to educate the physicians as well as the pharmacists and other medical staff who sit on the PNT committee about REMS. And then we also had a CE-accredited um, Grand Rounds presentation for the pharmacist to explain general REMS requirements and what they need to know as a part of their daily job about REMS and how, how to recognize which drugs have a REMS requirement. Mm -hmm. So then, over and above the education, one of the big things we did was create a REMS resource, and it took the form of a spreadsheet. And it's available on any computer in, in, in the hospital setting. Um, it's accessible not just to pharmacists, but to in any medical staff, anybody who has access to a computer. And on that REMS resource, it lists the drugs with inpatient applicable REMS requirement, as well as the reason why there's a REMS required. So what, what is the adverse event that the REMS has been created to try and prevent? And then also details about is a medication guide required? What parts of elements to assure safe use are required? 
Um, does the physician have to be enrolled? Does the patient have to be enrolled? And if a physician or a patient needs to be enrolled in some sort of program, then there are links on that spreadsheet to the outside website for the pharmacist or the medical staff to be able to access. There are also links to medication guides if that's part of the requirements. And then there's also some information about ordering of REMS drugs on that spreadsheet because some REMS drugs have restricted drug distribution programs. And so if, if there's some special distribution, like it's we would only be able to receive a patient-specific supply, then that information is on that REMS resource as well. What we did to help the pharmacists in their daily practice is in the pharmacy order entry system, we built flags to pop up any time that they entered a drug order for a REMS drug. And those flags referred them back to that REMS resource for further details of what they needed to do. The other thing we did to kind of have another level of check is we now currently store all of the drugs with REMS requirements in the narcotics vault in the inpatient pharmacy. And so this serves a couple of different purposes. One, it's an, that extra layer of check for the technician or the, the inpatient pharmacist who goes to pull that medication to say, wait a minute, this is in a different location. Let me talk with our decentralized pharmacist to make sure that we've met all the REMS requirements before we send this medication up to the floor. The other function that it served is that it allows for a tracking mechanism for us to know which patient that particular drug is going to. Because in talking with our pharmacist who does a lot of the ordering and tracking and all of that of restricted distribution medications, she said one of the things she would really like is if she ever has to go back and audit or be audited is a way to track who got those medications. So storing those drugs in the narcotics vault helped us fulfill that particular need. And as far as from a policy perspective, we discussed several times if we wanted to have a separate REMS policy for the hospital or if we wanted to incorporate it into an already existing policy. And because the nature of REMS is fluctuating and there's no standardization of REMS requirements as of yet, we decided to include some wording about REMS requirements and specifically what the pharmacist's role, what the physician's role, and what the patient's role is. And that verbiage is included in our medication order processing policy for the hospital. So it's not a separate policy. It's included into an already existing policy. Mm -hmm. And then the final thing we did was that we realized that a lot of these drugs that have REMS requirements had never gone up for review by our PNT committee because a lot of these REMS drugs are not used on a very regular basis by a lot of patients. So we decided that all of the drugs with REMS requirement would go before PNT and the PNT committee approve them as formulary restricted drugs. And they're restricted in that we have to make sure that the prescriber as well as the hospital and the patient fulfill all of the REMS requirements before that medication is given to the patient in the inpatient setting. I see. So I infer from uh, your answer, Lindsay, that at the time all these changes were made, physicians were writing their medication orders either in the patient chart or in some other paper form rather than uh, with a computerized uh, entry system. Is that correct? That's correct the time it worked was physicians would write orders in a paper chart, 
and those paper orders would be scanned to the pharmacist, and the pharmacist would enter the order into the pharmacy order entry system. And then most of the drugs were available through automated dispensing cabinets there on the floor where the nurse could access them. And there are some medications that aren't utilized as much in the facility that we kept small supplies of in the main inpatient pharmacy. Mm -hmm. Well, Min, I understand that Tampa General now has CPOE. And could you comment on how perhaps that major change has affected the system that was set up that Lindsay has described? Mm -hmm. Yes, we went live with our uh, full EMR system as of October 2011, so it's still fairly fresh and new to us. We went full with not only physician order entry, but also now everything being electronic, including barcoding, administration, all of our still 90% of our meds are still dispensed from automated dispensing cabinets. We have carousels and med carousel for most of our drug inventory management as well in the fully integrated medical record system. The physicians are doing their own order entry. The pharmacists are still responsible for verification in the EPIC system. The pharmacists are still responsible for identifying when a REMS agent is ordered and then going through the process of reviewing the requirements for REMS. So much of the process really hasn't changed that much right now. Again, the system is fairly still new to us. We're still stabilizing and understanding the full functionalities and, and abilities of the electronic medical record. We do have future plans and have been working with our pharmacy build team to look at how do we make the system smarter to be able to flag and identify the REMS requirements upon physician order entry so that it naturally will direct the physicians to the appropriate forms or to guide them in understanding the REMS requirements for them to make the decision on whether or not this this drug or this agent should be ordered, and then if it is, what's the workflow, what's the process to drive them to fulfill and meet the REMS requirements prior to hopefully even coming to the verification queue. That is our future goal, and that's the direction that we're hoping to use the EMR, but as of right now, we still have a process in which the pharmacists really do provide the oversight and the monitoring for the REMS requirements. Min, I'm curious, does Tampa General Hospital have an outpatient pharmacy? And if so, has there been any crossover between policies and procedures in inpatient and outpatient settings with respect to REMS? Yes, we actually have a fairly large outpatient pharmacy um, that provides discharge prescriptions to all of our patients as well as employees. So with a 1,000-bed hospital, our volume is pretty high. We use SureScripts as our pharmacy systems for the outpatient pharmacy, and the program currently able to identify when a patient gets an agent that's prescribed that is a REMS drug, a medication guide is automatically printed and then provided to the patient. So much of the outpatient requirements, like Lindsay had mentioned earlier, really requires distribution of a medication guide. And the SureScript system does have a process in place to identify when a REMS agent is prescribed and then dispensing that medication guide um, for the patient. Lindsay, uh, what advice do you have for other institutions that may be assessing their approach to REMS in the inpatient setting based on the work you did here at Tampa General? I guess my overall advice is for them to do their own sort of gap analysis, and they can follow the process that we outlined in the article in AJHP on how 
to go about doing that and assess whether they have policies and procedures in place already for REMS drugs. I think one of the other keys and pieces of advice that I would give to anybody who's doing an assessment with REMS is to make sure that you have ongoing resources available to you because REMS, as I mentioned before, is constantly changing. I said before, at the time of my assessment, there were 145 drugs that had REMS requirements. But in the last year, about the last year, a lot of the drugs that only require a medication guide, they've had their REMS requirements dropped, and they basically are now functioning only under the medication guide requirement and not under a full REMS. So I, the last time I checked, there were actually just under about 100 drugs that had REMS requirements. The number of drugs that require REMS fluctuates almost on a daily basis. So making sure that you have some sort of ongoing, ongoing resource or person responsible that you can allocate to, the, to an ongoing project, that's the other piece of advice that I would give to anybody who is looking to do a similar assessment in their institution. Well, with respect to resources and thinking of external resources to an institution, ASHP has devoted a good bit of attention and effort to a resource center on its website regarding REMS requirements. Did you find that helpful, and would you recommend that others perhaps consult with it on this issue? Yes, I, I do think that the ASHP resource is a great tool for ASHP members and that they should check it out. The ASHP resource is very comprehensive, and they formulate it kind of in a question and answer type of format. So they'll ask, why, why does the medication require a REMS? Does the hospital or pharmacy have to enroll in a program? Does the patient have to enroll? Does the prescriber have to enroll? Does a medication guide have to be dispensed? Is there some restricted drug distribution process for this particular drug? So I think it's a very comprehensive resource that's great for ASHP members out here, out there. Well, Lindsay and Min, uh, thank you very much for taking this time to speak with me. Uh, this is William Zelmer, AJHP Contributing Editor. I've been speaking with Lindsay Childs and Mintree Young, who are two of the authors of an AJHP paper entitled Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategies, Assessment of a Medical Center's Policies and Procedures. That concludes this podcast. For more information, please visit www.ajhp.org.